Now, friends, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with us to the fourth chapter of the first epistle of Paul to Timothy. And before we get into that, I should call attention to the fact that the word that opens up the fourth chapter, verse 1, is now. That is, that's the way it is in our translation. But I think the better translation should be, but the Spirit speaketh expressly. That is, it puts it in contrast to what he has said back in that primitive creed of the church in verse 16, where he said, "...and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels." preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And then, but the Spirit expressly, and that's over in contrast to it. But the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons." Now, I have said in my notes that the latter times here refers to the last days of the church on earth. I want to say to you now that I want to change that, because I believe here that the expression in the latter times and the last days that are mentioned over in 2 Timothy 3, 1, I think that the last days here had to do with that, actually, that was immediately following the life of Paul. Because, you see, when he was in Ephesus, he had warned them that there would come in wolves in sheep's clothing that would deceive believers. And actually, the apostasy began at that time. John could say, already there are many antichrists, and already error had entered into the church, and we find that many churches of the early churches had gone off into a heresy. Actually, the first great church was the Coptic church in Africa. It was way ahead of the others. North Africa produced some of the greatest saints in the early church. Augustine came from there. Tertullian came from there. Athanasius came from there. And many of the great saints of the church. But they went off into a heresy, you see. They departed from the faith so that what we have here in the latter times has to do with that which was coming. It did not have the coming of Christ in view at all. But when you come over to 2 Timothy 3.1, in the last days, there will be perilous times. Then you're dealing there with a technical expression that speaks of the last days of the church here on earth before the Lord Jesus takes it out. Now, I do not think that here that is the thought that we have in mind. The latter times refer to our times today. And we do not know whether Christ is coming before this century ends. There's some saying that, but they don't know. And it's dangerous to teach that sort of thing, I believe, today. But the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times 
some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, there would come in the last times, the latter times, not the last, but the latter times, it means that which was ahead of the church, and we've had just about 1,900 years of it now, some, that is, there would be heretical teachers, and they would mislead a great company of people, and they shall depart from the faith. Now, you have this word here for depart from the faith. It actually means departure. And as we saw in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that there would be an apostasy actually means that there would be a departure. And that departure was the rapture, that this matter of apostasy had been in the church a long time. That would not be new at the end of the age by any means. I think it will grow, and it has grown down through the years. And when the church is raptured, you will have on the earth an organization, as we saw in Second Thessalonians. But that organization is totally apostate because the true church has been raptured and taken out of the world. And this has been almost literally translated here, apostasy, that some shall apostatize from the faith, and that this is the apostasy. Well, that means to depart. It means a departure. And a departure means you've got to have a point, not only of where you're going, but where you've come from. And the place they've come from means they have professed at one time to hold to the faith, but now they have departed from it. And the word literally means, it's apohistomy. Histomy means to stand, and apo means away from. You see, you go away from a place. That's departure from a place. Now, the place that they were was the faith. They held it. Now they've departed from the faith. There cannot be an apostasy in paganism because they've never professed the faith. They've never professed to trust Christ as Savior. They've never heard about him, and there can be no apostasy there. It has to come in the organized church. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here, that the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Now, when they depart from the faith, what's responsible for it? What is it that's caused them to depart from the faith? Is it because they become highly intellectual? Is it because of scientific developments and the increase of knowledge is revealed that the faith cannot be held? Oh, no, no. They'll depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits. Now, actually, seducing spirits... And that word seducing is a very interesting word. It means wandering and roving, and it comes from the word vagabond or a deceiver or a seducer. In fact, Satan is called that, so that they shall give heed to seducing spirits. That is, this is satanic spirits and doctrines of demons. That's the correct translation. They'll give attention to that sort of thing. 
Now, there is a grave departure today. And the thing that has alarmed a great many people is this, that in this very materialistic age, there is a return today to the spirit world. And a great emphasis is placed on it. Now, we are told today to try the spirits, to see whether they be of God or not, because there's gone out into the world. There's gone out these seducing spirits. Now, the real test is this creed up here, that God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit, that the only way of salvation is through the death of Christ. And this is the way that you can test these doctrines of demons today. Now, there has gone over a very small segment of folk today. They are believers. At least they claim to be believers. And I can't understand why they've gone over into this great emphasis on demonism today. So many people right now are interested in that subject, and they read everything on it. Well, I think that we're seeing a real manifestation of it, but a lady called me all the way from El Paso, Texas, the other day, because believers there were getting involved in this, spending a great deal of time talking about it. Well, I want to say to you, I think that the best thing that you and I can do for the devil is to show him a clean pair of heels. That's the best thing that we can do, and not be a bunch of heels and stick around and get ourselves involved and engaged in all of this. And some folk are going around today casting out demons. Let's stay clear of this, because we are warned against this, this doctrines of demons. Stay away from it today and test everyone by its acknowledgment of the fact of the deity of Christ, that God was manifest in the flesh, and that we're justified through the redemption that he wrought for us on the cross. Now, the thing they do, speaking lies and hypocrisy. They pretend to be very pious and very religious. I've been in the church just long enough to always be suspicious of this very pious position that a great many people take, being super-duper saints, that they've got something special. My friend, if you do have the truth, it'll have to make you humble, because if the first thing you're going to find out is really how little you know. I thought one time I knew a little about the Bible, but I've come to a place today how ignorant I am. I've really got a whole lot of nerve to teach the Bible today, as ignorant of it as I am. But my friend, I look about me today, and I see those that are, oh, they know practically nothing about the Word of God. And today, they are becoming authorities in this field. May I say to you, speaking lies in hypocrisy, pretending to be something that they are not, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, you remember the thing that should characterize the visible church was faith and love and a good conscience, tender-hearted people. I want to tell you, there are a lot of these folk that have gone over. They're talking too much today about sex in the church. And I want to tell you, I've heard some things that are happening in some places make my hair curl. What I've got left 
and they are saying things, doing things. May I say to you, I don't think you could do them unless your conscience has been seared with a hot iron. You've got away from the Word of God. You see, you'd have a tender conscience in the church. Oh, today the church needs to recognize how important it is in the plan and purpose of God, and it should not stoop to a low level. I can't buy a lot of the music today. I don't think that music is heavenly at all. I think it's hellish, my friend. Now, this has been going on a long time. Even in Christ's day, there were folk that had gone off into cults and isms from Judaism. For instance, forbidding to marry. Verse 3 now, "...and commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth." And these are diet faddists, and they make certain rules and regulations that are not in the Word of God, forbidding to marry. Now, in Christ's day, down by the Dead Sea, there were a group of Essenes, as they were called. And it was among them that the scrolls, the Isaiah scrolls, and they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, have been found. They were down there, and even in Christ's day. And when Christianity came along, they hooked on to it, you see, forbidding to marry, and they had that, commanding to abstain from foods. And today there are those that go off on that as if food would commend you to God. Now, it is true that if you eat the wrong kind of food that you get a tummy ache, but that hasn't anything to do with your spiritual life, my friend. It may affect it, but it has nothing to do with it. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, the word of God does not condemn it. It commends it. And if you can return thanks for food, then may I say that sanctifies it for your body, because the word of God is already said. Now, there's certain things I can't be thankful for. Down in San Antonio, Texas, I'm told is a place that cans rattlesnake meat, and that's a delicacy, so I'm told. Now, if you would invite me to dinner and tell me you had rattlesnake meat for dinner and ask me to return thanks, I don't think I would. <laughs> I'd say, I'm sorry, I can't be thankful for this, my brother, if it can be received with thanksgiving. Why, you just go ahead, friends, eat it. Just whatever you can eat, you eat it. It's perfectly all right. Now, this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture, you see, because this is the very thing that a man of God today, a servant of God, is going to avoid. These are the things he's to avoid. Now, friends, we're in this section here that we've come to where we're actually dealing with the officers in the church. He brought to our attention in a very definite way the fact that there was coming into the church an apostasy. That is, there would be men who would profess to believe, but they would move away from the faith and finally get to the place where they would deny it, and they would put an altogether different emphasis upon the Word of God. 
And as a result, why a good minister should warn people of that. And Paul says in verse 6, "...if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine unto which thou hast attained." Now, actually, the minister and every believer is a minister. But here he's thinking of Timothy as being a teacher of the Word of God. And I believe that this is a gift some men have, some don't. Some men have another gift. They have the gift of a pastor, that is, to be able to deal with people personally and individually. But all believers are ministers. We've seen that before. And therefore, a believer, how will he be able to build up himself. I get letters from so many pastors. They feel a great need, many of us in the ministry. How are we going to grow in the Word of God? And he's going to talk about that just a little later. But here he's making it clear that the way we're to be built up is not to go off in a tangent on this matter of diet or this matter of you can eat this and you shouldn't eat that, and that we have to adopt some ascetic program as if that would commend you to God. Well, what are we to be built up in? Well, our diet is to be nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. And he commends Timothy here that he's attained to that. Now, some folk think that there was a danger of Timothy over there in the city of Ephesus, where there was so much of religion and the work of Satan was so obvious over there that there was a danger of this young preacher going off in that. I don't think so. I think Paul makes it clear, you've attained to this, Paul says. Now, that's the thing that you are to pass on to these others, that they might warn against that thing. And now he moves on down in this that he should warn them not only of the apostasy and false teachers by teaching the words of faith himself, but now he is to refuse or to avoid profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. That is in verse 7. He is to practice godliness in his life, but he is to refuse the profane and old wives' fables. I know when I grew up as a boy, there were a lot of old sayings that would be quoted to us as children by the older people. I know that we visited in a home, and I think she was a dear Christian woman, but she had some of the most peculiar things. And I remember that she had something that everybody should have, and that was sulfur and tartar. And I was fed that because my mother listened to her. And I want to tell you, I've had enough sulfur and tartar to make a small mountain. And I don't know whether it did me any good or not, but she thought it was the thing to do, that that's all that I needed as a boy, if you just give him plenty of sulfur and tartar. And by the way, it was mixed in honey sometimes, and mixed in molasses at other times. 
And I want to say I didn't care too much for it. And I don't know that it did me any good at all. These are the things that he's warning against. And when I had cancer, I suppose that I received, without exaggeration, over a hundred books on diet of what I was to eat to get rid of cancer. And the very interesting thing is that I never followed any of them because if any one you'd follow, you'd contradict the other. One book said, eat plenty of grapes. Another one said, don't touch them. One book said, eat honey. Other said, don't touch it. Another said, let white bread alone and that sort of thing. Well, I never paid too much attention to that because I was listening more to the great physician. He had my case and I felt like that he could handle it. And this type of thing today, so many people put more emphasis on that than they do the Word of God. Now, no minister ought to be emphasizing that type of thing. After all, we are to give out the Word of God. Now, he makes this statement here that's quite interesting. He says, "...for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come." Now, there are those that believe that Paul here is downgrading bodily exercise. I don't understand it that way. After all, I want you to look at that man for just a moment. I think that Paul attended the games that they had in those great coliseums in that day. Now, Paul spent several years in Ephesus, about three years. When he was there, there was a great coliseum in which they actually had the Olympic Games at times. And they had the races there, that is, men running. And it would seat 100,000 people. And Paul uses the figure of the race of that day and makes a correspondence to the Christian life and the Christian walk and that the Christian life is actually a race in and of itself. May I say to you, This man knew a great deal about it. I believe he exercised. And then somebody said, can you be sure of that? Yes, and I'll tell you, when this was made very emphatic to me, when I stood yonder in the city of Sardis, that is the ruins, and I looked down, they've excavated part of the Roman road there, and I looked down that Roman road to the east, and Paul came down that road. Then I looked down that road going to the west, and I thought the man that came along here 1,900 years preaching the gospel of Christ, he didn't travel in a bus or in an automobile. He didn't travel either by horse or even by donkey. Paul walked that, and it took a rugged individual to cover the ground that this man covered throughout the Roman Empire. And When he was not going by ship, he spent most of that period walking. That was his method. And I don't think he did much jogging, but I think Paul did a great deal of walking, and that is something that, you know, is recommended today. Now, all Paul is saying here is, and these people were given over to games, to athletics, 
and we've become that kind of a nation. Every city today has built a great coliseum where great spectacles are conducted, and a great many Christians put more emphasis upon this than they do upon the things of God. I know that there are today church officers that'll spend more time in the summertime in the ballpark than they spend in the prayer meeting. And all Paul is saying, he's not saying that's wrong. What he's saying is this, let's hold things in the correct perspective. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, what is the difference between the two as far as importance is concerned? Well, bodily exercise will only help you in this life. Because when you get a new body, it won't make any difference whether you exercise in this body or not. But godliness, and this, my friend, is indicative of something. If you listen to Paul here, godliness is profitable to all things. Now, there are those that are saying today, well, a Christian can come back to God on easy terms, and he can. I emphasize that. And a Christian can get in sin, fine, that's true, he can, and he can come back to God. But my friend, a godly life pays off not only down here, but it'll pay off in eternity, whereas the prodigal son lost a great deal by going to the far country. And any Christian that's living a careless life and not living a godly life will find out that even in eternity, he'll have to pay for that sort of thing. Paul is saying, if you give yourself to bodily exercise, then fine. I think Paul did it. But he said, wait a minute. What about godliness? Are you as anxious about godliness as you are about physical exercise, about athletic events? And remember that the physical exercise ends at the end of this life, but godliness is carried over to the next. Now, this is very important, I think, for us to see. And he says this. He puts an emphasis on it in verse 9, now chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. This is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance. In other words, he says, here's something you can count on. You can count on it in Ephesus in the first century, and you can count on it in Los Angeles in the 20th century, and you'll be able to count on it in the 21st century if we make it that far. Verse 10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, again, we have something very important here. First thing is, if you stand for Jesus Christ today, it'll cost you something. There's no question about that. Then the next thing here that's very important is to know that the Lord Jesus, he's the Savior of all men. Today we've had a great deal of discussion about the fact, what was the color of Christ's eyes? How did Jesus look when he was here? Was he a blonde or a brunette? And a man said to me several years ago, he says, you know, I saw a terrible picture he says, they painted a black Christ. Well, I said to him, why not? I said, he's the Savior of all men. 
Now, friends, the important thing to understand is not the color of his skin, is not the color of his hair, it's not how high he was, how tall he was, or how much he weighed. That's not the important thing. And the Scripture never lets you in. Although he became a man, they never tell you anything about his description. The FBI just doesn't have it in their files today of how he looked, how high he was, and all that kind of information. But may I say to you, the Bible has it in its files. He's the Savior of all men. And whoever you are, he's your Savior. And he's the only Savior. But who does he save? Those that believe. You can turn him down if you want to. There is a plane, we're told, that leaves the international airport here every minute. May I say to you, I can get on any of them, but I don't. But every now and then I screw up my courage, like when I went to Florida. I screwed up my courage. I got a ticket, and I got on a plane going to Miami, Florida. It's a plane for everybody, but not everybody's going. Christ is the Savior of all men, but it's those that believe. I had to believe enough to get on the plane. This is important for us to see. Now, will you notice, these things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth. There would be those in the church that say, well, he's just a young fellow. He doesn't know yet, and maybe he didn't. But don't let anybody despise your youth. But be thou an example of the believers. Now, how can you keep them from it? Don't act like a young fool. <laughs> May I put it very plainly. That is a thing that an old retired minister said to me when I began as a young preacher before I was ordained. I told him, I said, I feel a little embarrassed. I'm just a student out there. And when I see a person with gray hair come in, I get frightened. He said, don't ever worry about that. Don't let anyone, he says, and he gave me this scripture, despise your youth. But you make dead sure you're an example of the believers. That's the important thing. It's not age that's important, but whether you're an example of the believers. In what way? In word and in conduct and in love, and in spirit, and in faith, and in purity. Now, today we may have a new morality. The Bible has a new morality also, and this is it. And believe me, in this day and age in which we live, this is brand new to a lot of folk. And I'd like to say this today, because I know that there are a lot of young believers that are listening to me. Here is God's standard. We should be an example today in word, in our conversation, in our conduct, in our love, in our spirit, and in faith, and in purity. Now he says, "...till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine." Now, may I say this, that we've come to here is something else. First of all, he said to him, and apparently Timothy was a young man. I think he must have been in his 30s. And now he says here, the minister is to read the Scriptures publicly. For what purpose? To comfort and to teach. Till I come, give attendance to reading, read the Word of God, and to exhortation and to doctrine. Now, this is important to understand today. The Word of God 
needs to be read. And until the church is getting people into the Word of God, it's, I think, missing its main function. This is very important. Now, this also is applicable to Timothy personally. What is the minister to do today? How is the minister to grow? Well, he's to grow by reading and by exhortation and doctrine. You see, a growing minister makes a growing church, and that's important to see. One of the greatest things ever said concerning Dwight L. Moody was said by a neighbor. They said, every time Mr. Moody comes home, You can just tell how much he's grown spiritually. And what about you? Are you farther along today than you were this time last year? Are you growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ? And the only way to do is by reading the Word of God, the great truths of the Word of God. Now he says to him here, Neglect not the gift that's in thee. Now the Spirit of God gives to every believer a gift. And this man had a gift as every believer does. And it was given thee by prophecy. Apparently, Paul had predicted and said what this young man would do. And it was with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. We're told here, I think, what it means, the officers of the church. Now, the laying on of hands never communicates anything, friends. Let's understand that. The idea today, if you put your hand on somebody, that will transfer something. The only thing you can transfer but laying hands on somebody are disease germs. You can transfer those, and that's all. But what does it mean? When you put your hand on a man, it means that now he is a partner with you in the ministry. And I always insisted the officers put their hand on every missionary that we dedicated. Why? that we are partners with them in their ministry. And I think every minister that is ordained should have hands put on him by those that are partners with him, the representatives in the church, the officers, because that is all that it means, but it means a great deal, as you can see. Now he says, meditate upon these things. May I say, that means to be diligent in study. There is no excuse for a minister not to study the Word of God. And there's no excuse for any Christian not to study the Word of God. That is important. Study. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Now, I don't have time to go into it. That's one reason that I refuse to accept devotions for a substitute for reading and studying the Word of God. You can't open the Bible at night when you've got one eye closed already and both feet are already in bed, and you turn to a chapter, and you're now going to read your chapter. Or in the morning, before you're half awake, you can do that, or at the dining table when you're going to make a break for it to get to work. My friend... You couldn't study geometry like that or higher mathematics or any science. And the Word of God is worthy of all that you and I can give it. And I found out I can't give it as much as it ought to have. This is important. Why? Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And 
the greatest compliment you can give your preacher is, my, I tell you, you are improving in your preaching. <laughs> That's the best thing you can say. Verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And may I say this very kindly, but I want to say it. God have mercy on the minister who's not giving out the Word of God today. Oh, that is, to my judgment, that's a frightful sin. It would be better to be a gangster than to be a man who's supposed to give out the Word of God, and he doesn't do it. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what the church is all about today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we continue on here in 1 Timothy, and today we're brought to the fifth chapter. And as we come here to the fifth chapter, actually chapters 5 and 6 belong together, and they are the duties of officers in the church. And this is a very practical section. Believe me, this gets right down to the nitty-gritty of church life. And there's nothing romantic in this, but there is something quite realistic here, and I trust that it may be meaningful for us today. Now, I want to begin reading at chapter 5, verse 1, and we have here the relationship of ministers to the different groups in the local church. And we find here his first relationship are to the elders. Now, there has been some difference of opinion here where Paul uses the word elder. Is he referring to the office of elder or to the age of the person? Well, in view of the fact that in the early church, the elder was an office and the word itself does refer to the individual. It would be a mature saint, a mature child of God and a man that occupied a certain office. Now, here I think that both are in mind for the very simple reason. The elder was an elder. He was an older man. Now, he says here, rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father and the younger man as brethren. Now, he was not to rebuke an elder publicly, but he was to be entreated privately. And the reason for that is, you must remember that Timothy was a young man, and he had to be very tactful in his relationship to these older men in the church. In other words, he was not to take the position of a know-it-all or to be in a position of being a dictator over these older men. And what he was to do was to encourage them, but also he was to have the word, I'm sure, with them privately if he thought that it should be done, because he makes it very clear here, rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father and the younger man as brethren. Now, this is a sweet relationship that should exist between Timothy and the older man and then those his own age. 
Now, we have here is the relationship, or the relationship of the pastor, or the minister, to the elder women. The elder women as mothers, the younger as saints. And notice this, with all purity. There is one thing that a minister should be very careful of in a church, is his relationship with the opposite sex. This has wrecked the ministry probably of more men than any other one specific sin. And nothing hurts a church like this. I have been in several churches after they have had an experience of where the pastors had to leave because of this type of thing. And very candidly, I don't like to go into a church like that. And the reason is... The spiritual deadness there is certainly noticeable. There's nothing that can destroy the spiritual life of a church than to have this kind of an experience. And this is not idle instruction here. The older women, treat them as mothers. Have a wonderful relationship with them. But the younger, remember they are sisters, and with all purity. In other words... The new morality does not work in the church and never will work in the church. Now we come to a third group here, and they are widows. First was to the elders, the officers, the older man, then his relation to the younger man, and then his relationship to the older women, and his relationship to the younger women. Now to another group honor widows that are widows indeed. Now, this word honor here is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it's the same word we get our word honorarium from. And it has in it the thought, actually, of value being attached to something. We call today, we have a special speaker, and I'm in that position now, not being a pastor, I will sometimes get a check from a church, and it will say on it, honorarium for speaking on a Sunday or in a week's services. It's considered an honorarium. In other words, they're attaching a value to what you've done. Now, apparently, the early church took care of widows, and they were very careful about this. You remember, this was a question that came up at the very beginning and in the sixth chapter of Acts. You remember the Greeks, they were the Jews that had come in from the outside. They were not those raised right there in Israel. And as a result, why these Greeks felt like their widows were neglected. They were not given as much as the others were or helped as much. And it raised the question, the apostles immediately removed themselves from the problem and said, you'll have to appoint men. Now, the instruction is being given how this is to be done. Honor widows that are widows indeed, that are really widows. You investigate. And if there's one thing that is practical in the Word of God, it's this matter of the practicality of using a whole lot of good common sense and not be moved by sentimentality. We were reluctant to help a Man, we'd read his letter from way down in the Caribbean. Now, he may be in real need, but I don't know that. 
And we did not want to begin something that could actually become sort of a racket. And as a result, others have wanted to get assistance too. And there are a lot of people out today, friends, knowing Christians are tender-hearted, that have got their hand out, and you have to be careful. Now, the early church took care of widows, but they didn't do this in some haphazard, sentimental sort of a way filled with emotion. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Let the deacons make an investigation and see if these are truly widows, if there's truly a need there, and how much is the need there. And personally, I think that this is an area in which not only conservative churches, but liberal churches have erred in today. Now, they are great at giving money to help the boys that ran off to Canada, the liberal churches, but I haven't seen many of them making very much of taking care of the widows in their midst. And conservative churches don't do too much in that line, but many of them do. And it's always a sweet spirit when you see that they're doing that. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Now he's going into this in a certain amount of detail. But if any widow have children or nephews, and nephews, here's grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now, in the investigation, does this widow in the church, does she have children? Why aren't they supporting? Does she have grandchildren then? If she has no children, that is, the children probably are dead or moved away. What about the grandchildren? They have a responsibility. Now, this was God's method, and I think it still is God's method. Let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. In the investigation... This is one of the things you'd find out, you see. Now, she that is a widow indeed, a real widow, and desolate, that is, in need, trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, here's a widow. It's a real widow. She's a godly woman. She prays. She not only prays for the church and the pastor, she prays for herself, for her need. She has the right to do it. And I want to say that God likes for you to help him answer prayer. God says this is the place. When you find a widow like that, then you help her. This is the thing he's saying. And I think this is quite lovely. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. But if you get over there and find out that she's having a cocktail party, I would say that that's not the widow to help. And I don't care how prominent her son might be in the church or how prominent her sister might be in the church, her brother. She's not to be helped, you see. She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. She's not to be helped. And these things command that they may be blameless. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, you make this very clear to the church, that the church might act in an honorable way in this connection. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And friends, I don't know how I can make that any stronger than it's made right here, that the widow is to be taken care of by her own flesh and blood. And if they deny that and don't do that, 
I don't care what kind of a testimony that the man gives at the Christian businessmen's meeting, and I don't care what kind of a testimony that this woman gives at the missionary society. I don't care what testimony that they give in the church. They're not taking care of their own. They've got no testimony. They're worse than an infidel. And I didn't say that. Now, I used some language some time ago, and somebody thought I was very harsh about this matter of helping folk. But I want to say to you, Scripture's pretty clear on this. You can miss some things on doctrine, but you sure can't miss this. Now, he says, "...let not a widow be taken into the number under sixty years old." Now, I believe in the number to be helped, having been the wife of one man. Why? If she's under that, she can work, and she is to do that. And she's to be well reported of for good works. If she hath brought up children... Now, it's well to check back in her life. If she hath lodged strangers, if she hath washed the saints' feet, if she hath to relieve the afflicted, if she hath diligently followed every good work. Now, see what kind of a person that she's been in the past. Now, she's in need. Well, you're to help her. And I wish today that the church, all churches, could get back to these very basic and simple principles and get away from this sentimental, emotional pull, especially around Christmas time or Easter time. And I'm going to speak very frankly, when some bum comes along and he knows that the church and some church people, for Jesus' sake, they're going to just shell out the money to him. And it doesn't do any good. While in that church, there may be a very wonderful widow that is in need. And she may be lonely and she hasn't had a visit. In a long time, her children are gone. Maybe they've moved away or dead. And she's in need. And the church ignores that sort of thing. May I say to you, friends, this is the thing that marks out. And if a church did that, may I say to you that that kind of a testimony today would get before the world. Now he moves on. This is tremendous here, is it not? He says she must be well reported of. In other words... Not to help everyone that comes along. Now, but the younger widows refuse. Why? For when they've begun to grow wanton against Christ, they'll marry. In other words, the younger widow, she has her mind on something else. And I do believe these other widows are to be deaconesses in the church. I think they're to render some service to a church. I called up a widow several years ago. And I said to her, I've just had a funeral, a very sad funeral of a wife that is, she's alone. She's given up her husband, and she had no children, and she has no friends. And I said, you've lost your husband. You know what it is? Go over there and visit her. And she went over there and visited her. They became warm friends. And I want to say this, that that poor lonely widow told me, she said, you know, that visit is the thing that brought me into a relationship with God I had never known before. Now, the younger widows, they're going to get married. And that's all right, as I see it. But notice this, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. Now, that younger widow, and this sometimes happens when a younger woman loses her husband. And I've seen this happen again and again. I saw a preacher's wife that married a man that 
Well, he was a wealthy man, but his investments were in racetracks. She married him, and believe me, she forgot her faith all of a sudden. And she was a younger woman, you see. Now, they're to be tested, and the church is to be very careful about that. Now, verse 13, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also. In other words, they carry garbage from one place to the other, and garbage is gossip. They carry it from one place to another, speaking things which they ought not to, you see. Now that she's been relieved of being a wife and a homemaker, and she has no children, she becomes a regular gadabout. Now, he says, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, rule the house, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachful. Now, this is talking about behavior of men and women in the church. Now, friends, I don't care what's being said today and what's being taught today. And I am being rebuked severely because of the fact that I have told one woman who wrote in, living with a drunkard that beat her, and I didn't give all the details, and I can't give it now. But no one knows what that woman went through. And I told her she's to leave her husband. God never asked her to live in that kind of a hell here on earth. And it wasn't a question of winning her husband. Now, there some women make themselves martyrs and become very pious at that type of thing. And that type of thing's being taught today. And I could give you example after example of where certain wives have gone absolutely to a nervous breakdown. And then when they had nervous breakdown, I can assure you one thing. They're no witness to their husband. Now, he's making it very clear here that these relationships in the church must be on the highest level. For some are already turned aside after Satan. You see, they were not genuine believers, of course. Verse 16, If any man or woman that believeth have with us, let them relieve them. Let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are with us indeed. In other words, the church should concentrate on those who are really in need. Now, he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Now, I think again that the early church paid the teachers. And a good teacher was to be paid, I think, a little bit more. In fact, double, it says, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain. Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy now. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. I've never found but two or three preachers that I thought were money lovers. Most men are in the ministry for a different motive than that. But you're not going to hurt the preacher if you give him a generous offering. And when a Bible teacher comes to your church, now somebody's going to accuse me of being personal here, but when he comes to your church, you be generous with him if he is a blessing to you. Now he said in verse 19, "...against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses." Now, if this were followed, I think it would keep down a great deal of gossip and misunderstanding and strife today. And if this was followed not only by the pastor, but by every member of the church, that you would not let 
somebody whisper into your ear the gossip concerning the pastor unless it's proven. And the important thing is always get the facts before you begin to talk. That is very important. And then the chances are the best thing is after you get the facts is not use it to scatter abroad a scandal, but to try to correct it. And that means you'd have to go to the proper authorities for that. Therefore, the accusation must be given between more than one witness to two or more witnesses. And I've always figured that if two people knew it, chances are there was some more that knew it also. And we read verse 20, "...them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear." Now, make sure you get the facts. But after you get the facts and you find out that a leader has sinned, he's to be rebuked. And the question arises, is this to be done publicly? Well, I believe that when a member of a church sins and it does not concern the congregation, that it should never be brought out into the open, nor should it be confessed there. But when a leader of the church, an, an officer in the church, sins, and the facts are ascertained, and it has hurt the church, then I think it's time to call names. And it may be time to drop names, and a name dropper here would mean to drop his name from the role of the church, because a church can be hurt that way. Now, will you notice, it says in verse 21, "...I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality." Now, he is to treat everyone alike. Now, here may be a leader in the church, and this man may be a man of means wealthy. And he may be a man that has been good to the pastor. He may have, you know, bought him a suit of clothes, or he may have helped him buy a new car, or something like that. Well, the pastor feels, well, he's just not inclined to want to bring a charge against that man. Now, Paul is saying here, and this is good for today, that you're not to show any partiality in the church. And you remember James does that. And I think one of the sins sometimes of us preachers is to say, oh, did you know that Mr. So-and-so is a member of my church, and he's a very wealthy man, and he's an outstanding man? Well, that in and of itself is showing partiality. The very thing that he's saying that there should not be shown partiality in dealing with the sins. Now, he says here, verse 22, "...lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other man's sins. Keep thyself pure." Now, first, lay your hands suddenly on no man. Now, you remember we've had this before, that the officers are installed by the laying on of the hands. And as we said before, that the laying on of hands does not communicate anything. There's no spiritual vibrations that go out from the one putting his hand on another. 
The only thing that you can transmit by laying on hands are disease germs. And sometimes you can do that. And I believe in laying on of hands like this. I always think of what Dr. Tozer said years ago. He said, my father believed in the laying on of hands, and believe me, he really laid them on. Well, I believe in laying on of hands. And in connection with that, why a friend gave me this little clipping some time ago that he apparently got out of a newspaper. And it said, once Papa dealt out stern discipline in the woodshed, then furnaces took away the need for wood. The electric razor eliminated his strap. Tax worries took away his hair, so his hairbrush was discarded. That's why kids are running wild today. Dad's run out of weapons so that all he could do was just lay on his hand. My dad was good at that, by the way. And I often wondered whether it burnt his hand as much as it burnt me. But laying on of hands is a very good practice. But here the thought is, do not lay your hands suddenly on a man. That is, on a neophyte. That is, a man that's just recently been converted. Now, that's the reason that I have opposed that when a Hollywood star, years ago this took place, would be converted, that they not be put on the platform to even give a testimony. And today, of course, they are writing books on theology, so-called. And it's weird theology, by the way. They are not to be made teachers immediately. My feeling today is that the church ought to be a place of instruction where the Word of God is taught and men and women might be built up in the faith. Now, we have developed today Alka-Salsa Christians and Alka-Salsa churches. It's all fizz, foam, and froth. All that you have is just a lot of emotion and a lot of talking about love, love, love. Well, it's wonderful. And that's the thing Paul has said. Here, how important it is in the church that that be displayed. But my friend, that has to be anchored in the Word of God. Our mistake, I feel today, and it's been the mistake of many of us, is that we always interpret experience as being the thing that is the real test. We've got the cart before the horse. The Word of God is the test. And experience should follow from that and should prove that. But the experience is not to contradict the Word of God. And that's been the great problem today. Now, these men that are called elders here obviously were teachers in the early church. And I think, as we saw last time, that they received a remuneration. And I think there in the city of Ephesus, Paul wasn't there. And there were literally, at this time, thousands of converts in that immediate area. And they need teaching. And these men were teachers. Now, it was a pretty serious business for this young missionary to select these teachers and to appoint them to teach the Word of God. And that's what he's saying to him. Probably we should conclude this. He says, "...neither be partaker of other men's sins." Keep thyself pure. In other words, don't compromise, Timothy. That's what he's saying to him in this. Because there'd be somebody that'd come so, oh, this fellow that's been converted, he has a wonderful testimony. 
Let's have him give it. And this fellow gets up and preaches a little sermon. Now, Paul says you are a partner in sin if you do a thing like that. You keep yourself pure. Make sure that these men are anchored in the Word of God. Now he says here, and here's where I must smile. He says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy frequent infirmities. And how this verse has been abused. And first of all, let me say that it's obvious here that this is not wine as a beverage, but wine as a medicine. And I just wonder if Timothy over there having to fool with this bunch of deacons in Ephesus, hadn't developed an ulcer of the stomach. At least he's told to take a little medicine. At least he's certainly been put under the tension and pressure of this position to which he's been brought. Now he says to him here, "...some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after." Now, sometimes God will judge a Christian right here. And because he doesn't judge you immediately, it doesn't mean he's not going to judge you. I have watched that over a period of years, and I've had quite a few years to observe this, that the way that God will move, he made it very clear back in 1 Corinthians, you remember, and this was in connection with the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 30, because they conducted this without discerning the Lord's body here, it was conducted in a wrong manner. He says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Now, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And I continue to read that. Now, he says, God's already judging some of you. Some actually are sick. Others have died, and it's been a judgment of God. And that was true in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, verse 31, "...for if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged." Now, when a Christian sins, he can judge himself. And that doesn't mean he's to feel sorry for it. That means that he's to deal with that sin in his life. First of all, he's to make, if it's hurt somebody, he's to make it right. The second thing that he's to do is to turn from it. And if he doesn't do that, he hasn't judged himself. But when we're judged, he says, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. In other words, the world today commits those sins and God judges. Now, a Christian's not going to get by with it. Either God will judge you or you'll judge yourself. Now, if you judge yourself, it's settled. If you do not judge yourself, he will judge you. And he makes it clear here that sometimes God will judge that individual right here and now. And then again, we'll have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, he says, "...in like manner also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hidden." And the same thing applies to good works. Now, sometimes God blesses a saint down here for something that he's done that God can reward him for. He can reward him right here. And some, they're going to have to wait till they get over in his presence. And I think that's true of a great many of his saints today. 
Now, he goes on here in chapter 6. We're in the same section. And now you have the relationship of the minister here to another group. Actually, it's a group here to those that are called servants. Listen to him in verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, I'd love to spend a long time at this particular place here, because I believe this is one of those important places in the Word of God. This is the relationship of capital and labor. The Christian should render a full day's work for whoever he's working for. And if he agrees to work till 5 o'clock, he's to work till 5 o'clock. Then sometimes they go out and leave their pickaxe hanging in the air. They don't finish up. But a man that's a Christian is to turn in a full day's work for a full day's pay. But now suppose that his boss is a Christian. It puts it on a different basis. It brings it even above any kind of a contract. I know a plant, it's a manufacturing plant, and it's a big one, back in Dallas, Texas, where the owners of that plant are Christians, and they employ a great many seminary students. I have the privilege every time I go back there speaking, and they give those men 45 minutes, and they have a chapel service, and it's time that the boss pays for But it's marvelous there. I commended them one day, and they said, don't commend us. Because we find that many of these men who work for us that are Christians, well, they do better work than anybody. We feel that this is a two-way street. We don't feel like they're helping us. We feel like that they are wonderful employees, and we're not giving them anything, and that they are rendering to us everything. What a wonderful relationship. I wish I could tell you some more about this, because right here in Southern California, we have several small manufacturing concerns run by Christians. That is, a Christian is the owner and runs it, and he has employees, and they listen to this program every day. They're listening to it right now. And I just want to say a great big amen, and thank God for you, for two reasons, that you're given a testimony in the world and you support the Through the Bible Radio. Thank God for organizations like this today. You see, Christianity, friends, gets out in the workshop. It gets its hands greasy. It gets its feet down in the mud sometimes. Not the mud of sin, but the mud of hard work. Now, we have here, we begin with verse 3 now, and he comes back to these great truths that he's dealing with, those that are not cooperating. What about that? If any man, verse 3 now, chapter 6, teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and disputes of words of which cometh envy, strife, railing, evil, suspicions, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such 
withdraw thyself. And actually, there are proud men in the ministry, and they do cause trouble in the ministry. Pride will always do that, and it's unbecoming of a child of God. We ought to recognize that we're sinners saved by the grace of God. And there's always the danger of having that pride, pride of place, pride of race, pride of face, and pride of grace. And some people are even proud that they've been saved by the grace of God. Someone said to Churchill once concerning Attlee, says, well, at least he's humble. And Churchill says, well, he has plenty to be humble about. And believe me, we Christians have got plenty to be humble about. We have a very sorry sordid background. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. And here you're to deal with these folk, by the way. Now he talks about the rich. How ministers are to deal with the rich. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the important thing for the child of God. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. When one of the Astas died years ago, some of the heirs were waiting outside. When the lawyer came out and the doctor, they said immediately, they said, how much did he leave? <laughs> and the lawyer said he left everything. He didn't take anything with him. We come into the world that way. And that's the reason a child of God ought to use his money for the work of God. I believe today that making a will is fine, but I certainly have seen that abuse. And a child of God ought to make sure that he's supporting the work of God. But the Christian, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, remember, it's the love of money, not money, but the love of money. They've erred from faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, not only do we have the rich here, now he begins to tell about what the average Christian, but thou, O man of God, flee these things, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life unto which thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. It's like that little saying that I've given now several times. If you were accused of being a Christian and brought into court, would there be enough proof there to get a verdict? May I say to you, that's what he's talking about here. Lay hold on eternal life. Make it clear that you're a child of God. Verse 13, I command thee in the sight of God, who maketh all things alive, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall sow, who is the blessed, he's the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're known by the one you're following. If you're following Christ, you must be a child of God, and you're going to let people know it. Now, I drop down to verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, that is to sympathize, willing to share, and 
laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And that is, on the life which is life indeed. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings, that is, empty babbling, and oppositions of knowledge falsely so-called. Don't try to be an intellectual preacher, a teacher, a Christian, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. We go to Second Timothy next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.